Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We are in a place we've never been before, may never come back to. So we're going to savor it. That's what you do with moments like that in your life. And one of the reasons I know that is because when I introduce our special guest and talk about his book... I will let you know that his book, American Ramble, written by Neil King Jr., taught me about that process of savoring, about finding places in which you can be surprised and joyful about things you've never experienced before. I want to let you know where we're at, this place we've never been, we may never come back to. It is the Grill at Harriman House in Reisterstown, Maryland. It's important in the book. We'll get to that in a second. Neil King, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. I like how you opened that. Thank you. Uh, The subtitle of the book is A Walk of Memory and Renewal. So let's focus on that first big word, walk. Where did you walk and why? I walked out my door nine blocks east of the U.S. Capitol, and uh, I turned left and made my way to see Abe Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial, and then over almost a month, I made my way in a kind of arcing path to Central Park in Manhattan. So it was a walk from my house to New York. And how long did it take you? 26 days? 26 days. How many miles? It was 330 miles, so obviously a much more roundabout way than the straight up 95 route. Yeah. What did you take with you? Very little. I had a limited, you know, a small backpack, 
couple of changes of clothes, one pair of shoes, a very light fly rod to do some fly fishing, a laptop, had to do some writing along the way, um, water bottle. It was about 17 pounds all told. Uh, I was not camping. I didn't have a tent, didn't have a sleeping bag. Um, I was sleeping in Airbnbs and inns and funky places along the way. Um, but I wanted to keep it light. Mm-hmm. Did you take any paper maps with you? I did, actually. I had um, some kind of torn out, detailed maps, uh, particularly of Pennsylvania, and I had a Rand McNally. And occasionally I use them. But, you know, our phones, which aren't really phones, they're everything but phones in some ways, uh, they do wondrous things. And I relied a lot on the phone mapping. What was your intention? You know, that is a complicated question because I had so many intentions. But I think the simplest intention was to pay attention to this big expanse of of a story uh, in between these two places. You know, I call it one of the founding swaths of America. Um, so much of our history had taken place there between those two places, Civil War history, you know, pre-European history, yep. um, independence, War of Independence, the drafting of the Constitution, mm-hmm. the, all that stuff. And it was also to connect, you know. Um, we had gone through the horrors of the 2020 COVID experience, um, I left at the end of March of 2021 in that brief opening, you know, kind of COVID spring when we thought we were coming out of it. We had been vaccinated, et cetera. And I really wanted to get out, mix it up with people and kind of, I say in the book, see if America is still possible or had seen its best days. There was a little bit of that mm-hmm. kind of taking a pulse of the country and, you know, um, yeah, that's, I guess, maybe the best description of it or the why of it. As uh, folks listen to you uh, on CBS News streaming or on radio stations around the country or on the podcast platforms, they hear a bit of a catch in your voice. Yeah. Explain that to them. Because <laughs> I think they're uh, somehow related. They're, they're, inter- it is. Inter- I they're mean, intertwined a, here. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, for one, this has nothing to do with my voice, but I'd had um, five, six years ago a cancer scare that had been a real scare. I had like faced the real prospect of having decades taken away and not um you know decades that i was counting on Mm -hmm. um i I escaped that thankfully and then uh at the end of the summer of 2020 i got bit by a tick i got lyme disease which is super common around this part of the mid-atlantic and it like botched up one of my vocal cords so that in itself has been a whole long saga for a while my voice kind of didn't exist um it's better now i would file lyme disease under the category unappreciated menace it's much worse than I think people Absolutely. imagine it to be, Absolutely. and it can sneak up on you yeah. literally yeah. and figuratively quickly. Yeah, and the my version of it, despite the fact that it's given my voice this kind of gravelly quality, um, has been among the lesser experiences you could have because people have had their lives completely upended and botched up in big, grave ways, you know, all kinds of muscular problems. Um, all kinds of things that really, you know, where they're just depleted. And so thankfully it hasn't been that way for me. I want to let our audience know that this is a magnificent book. It's beautiful to read. It is about Neil King Jr.'s walk and America, but it's also about yourself. It's impossible to read this book and not crawl into some places into yourself that you maybe hadn't thought about ever or you set aside for a while. Discoveries, idea of what time means, idea of what wonder means, what splendor means what fear means and how you regard it and how fear intersects with your life and maybe how you apply it in places you're not always conscious of. It is remarkable and it's achievement that way. Um, But I want to ask you about a couple of very big themes in the book. 
Somewhere people and anywhere people. Yeah. Who are they? You know, so I walk through a very settled part of the country. I mean, um, a lot of areas where the original people that had settled that um, patch of ground were still essentially there. Their descendants were still there. You know, that is the nature of so much of America, where you go through places that were settled by the, you know, the uh, Mennonites or the Amish or by some um, wave of German settlers in the, you know, late 1600s or whatever, and their people are by and large still there. And, you know, most of us who live in Washington or live in New York who have meandered around with our careers and went away to college, we are what I call anywhere people. We um, are kind of at home anywhere. We've lived a whole bunch of places. We don't deeply belong to any one particular place. We don't find our identity rooted in that ground. And yet I was walking through an area very much made up of somewhere people that were very much about that place. They found their identity there. Their kin were there. And, um, you know, my interaction with them as a kind of versatile, wandering, anywhere person, um, I just found that whole thing really rich. Have you always been a wanderer? I have, actually, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's funny because I grew up very much as a somewhere person. My, my family went back four generations in Colorado. They were among the first settlers of the state, I mean, as, you know, European uh, incomers of, to the state. Um, but as soon as I graduated from high school, I, was, I hit the road, and I've lived in multiple countries, and I've been in every state in the country, I'm sure, pretty much as you have. And, you know, back in the day when we used to hitchhike and things like that, I crossed the country multiple times in that fashion. And, I, and one of the things that the book is about is kind of inserting yourself into other people's lives. You mentioned the fear factor. Mm -hmm. You know, we do live controlled by a lot of fear now. I've always sort of pushed the bounds a bit on um, putting myself out there and relying on the kindness of strangers, as the expression goes, and seeing how that plays out. And I find that experience really worthwhile and really meaningful. We have about a minute to go before we go to our first break. You write in the book about it, that experience in your 20s. I mean, you really were a wanderer. I mean, you went globally on not very much money. You would work odd jobs and just sustain yourself, kind of live off the land and saw things. Yeah. No, I took one big trip around the world, um, which was uh, fantastic. I was gone for 17, 18 months. You know, I was in a Buddhist monastery. I worked in a vineyard in the south of France at a clothing factory in Germany. And, um, you know, that was a wonderful, wonderful stretch. And in some ways, I think this walk was a very belated continuation of that experience. And did you find yourself remembering your youthful self? Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think all of us feel the continuum of that self pretty strongly, at least I do. I mean, I'm very aware that I'm not 22. <laughs> but on the other hand, I can feel the 22. And in a lot of ways, you know, I say in the book that I had made a vow to myself in my 50s that when I got to my 60s, I wanted to do it as a kind of redux of my 20s, mm -hmm. um, but without all the angst of what am I going to become, who am I going to marry, where am I going to live? And uh, that this walk has been part of that project in a lot of ways. I would say as someone who's also in his 60s, one of the great uh, endeavors is to uh, minimize angst and uh, move on with discovery. And that's what, uh, in part, American Ramble, a walk of memory and renewals about Neil King Jr. is our special guest. We're in Reisterstown, Maryland. More on that in just one second. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a minute. <sighs> 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to The Takeout. Lunch is on the way. We're at The Grill at the Harriman House in Reisterstown, Maryland. American Ramble is the book. Walk of Memory and Renewal. Neil King Jr. is the author. So... I mentioned in the open, Neil, that this place, the grill, looms somewhat large in the early passages of this book. Tell my audience why. You know, I, I'm trying to think. I think I was on day four, so you know, I'd walk somewhere probably 80 miles or thereabouts from D.C. Um, I'd come up into this part of northern Maryland. We're on the kind of outer outskirts of Baltimore. I was heading up towards the Mason-Dixon line. There was a big storm kind of trailing me and coming in. I needed to find a refuge and a place to eat. So I came into John Reister's town. I kind of tell the story about how this fellow John Reister came here and set up his shop and soon his town was named, this place was named for him as it built out. I came into this um, place, the Harriman House, and sat at the bar, ordered some fish tacos and a beer and it just opened rain outside, just pouring rain. And um, sheets of rain sheets falling. Of rain. I'm looking out the window, and in the most bizarre way, I just had this wave of just absolute joy. You know, it was almost a kind of like sobbing, kind of like laughing, sobbing kind of joy, like, oh my God. And, you know, people are sitting around, and I'm like, I hope somebody's <laughs> not noticing this freak over here. It was like, you know, they probably thought I just. Is he having a seizure? What's right, going yeah, on over just there? Just received some horrible news. It was quite the contrary. And I. You know, in the book, I try to describe, like, why do these things happen and how can you have just this intense wave of joy? And I think the best I can explain it is um, it was my life had been stripped down to this utter simplicity of this mm -hmm. backpack. Every day I was on this walk with this simple destination of the place mm -hmm. I was going to end up that evening. As promised, and, um, lunch has arrived. All right. And, you know, it, it was just that, 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 that everything for that period was basic and simple and pleasing and there i was with my beer and fish tacos and i couldn't have been happier so and i devote a fair chunk of that one chapter to that experience and as i read that chapter i was reminded about something that you can find as and you often refer to uh, religious texts not just uh, of the christian variety but all, all religions there is or can be an ineffable joy in simplicity yeah absolutely you know, it's funny. I didn't. Ex I didn't anticipate that the walk was going to be some kind of spiritual walk, and certainly didn't design it that way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of surprised how it became increasingly that way as I went. And I think some of it is when you're walking like this on a kind of pilgrimage, right? I was mm -hmm. on my way to the Ramble in Central Park, and um, 
you get a certain mindset where you become almost a little bit biblical in that way. And you realize, as I did even on the second day, that, you know, all of us from whatever, you know, readings or teachings we had as kids or, or later, you know, we're familiar with the, the parables of the Good Samaritan right. and this kind of stuff. And these are mainly stories that take place as somebody was walking down a road and they had an encounter with one or two other people mm -hmm. and something meaningful happened. You know, that's meaningful even now. Right. It resonates with us. Right. So I had a lot of those experiences, and I was like, whoa, these are like parable quality experiences. Of, and so that kind of started to engender this kind of like spiritual thing. And then I, you know, had ran into people that dropped lines on me that came out of nowhere and that kind of thing. Uh, Ted is one of them. Oh, yeah. He gave you a kind of framing for what he thought your journey was about, and this was very early on. Yeah. That was actually the day before I was here uh, in Reisterstown. And I was, um, you know, I'd had this kind of distressing experience the day before where I had uh, run into a guy outside of his house and I had no water. And I had asked him where, if he knew where I could fill my water bottle, which was kind of a, you know, loaded question because, of course, his house was teeming with water. But he directed me to a convenience store, you know, a couple of miles away. And we had a very odd uh, conversation. He never got around to offering me any water. And so, the next day, I'm walking along, kind of thinking, God, I wonder if I'm going to feel better about the country when I get to New York. And, you know, that was so, definitely a downer. That was an yeah. open opportunity for kindness, a small gesture, and it never even surfaced. Yeah. And I'd had a couple of experiences that day that were sort of along those lines, which I relate. And then the next day, I'm walking along and I'm in this subdivision of sorts. It was mainly made up of African American residents of, um, for whatever reason. And this guy, Ted, was at the end of his driveway. Uh, getting his big trash can about to bring it in and he saw me and I said hi and he was like you know what what are you up to and I said I'm on my way I'm taking this walk to New York and I'm coming from Washington I live right near the U.S. Capitol I told him a few facts and he just looked at me and he was like all right you know let me tell you what you're doing and he gave me this amazing sermon that I called this sermon of the tuning fork because he was like look you are out the country's been through all these horrors, George Floyd's death, the, the you know, protests, the riots even, the tearing down of statues, all the horrors of the year of COVID. The country's out of joint. You're out to retune yourself, to get yourself in, in sync. And in doing that, you're going to do that for the whole country. And I was like, well, wait, wait a minute, Ted. You know, that's a lot of weight. That's a bit much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I think you can do it. And I was like, okay. You know, and he, but he was great. But, but this idea of getting in tune and one of the other things that struck me about Ted's mini sermon was he said, you're screaming, we're all screaming. Yeah, yeah. And he had been through some stuff himself. He was saying that he, um, you know, had gone through some drug addiction and had his big down moments and that he was getting his act together and he wanted to write a book called uh, From the Pit to the Palace, A State of Mind. And I, I was thinking about it today when I was coming up here that that whole concept of a state of mind. I mean, so much of everything is what the state of mind is, right? Like our life is determined by our own personal state of mind. And it's up to each of us to look after that state of mind. And um, I think the walk was a good state of mind adjuster. And I think that's what he was sort of talking about. There's another theme that runs through the book. It, be, it starts at the beginning and there's a reference to it at the very end. Seems. Yeah. Wow. What are the seams? You're a perceptive reader. Uh, you know... When I say I love the book, I mean it. I really did. Wow. So, 
you know, even before I set off, a lot of people were kind of, and I, you know, I met people of all ages um, who would be like, wow, how do you have the freedom, the ability to do this? And I would kind of make the argument that we all have the freedom or ability to do something like this. It's a matter of just seizing the moments and the opportunities and kind of wedging open seams. And mm-hmm. as I described at one point, we there are these seams in our lives where you've just lost your job or you've just graduated from college or you've just come out of the army or maybe even you've just gotten divorced or yep. you've just recovered from an illness or those kind of fissure moments. And you can kind of break away and say, okay, I'm not going to go to my next job immediately. I'm going to take two weeks and and drive across the country or do something else that kind of opens up a space. And for me, I'd come out of this illness. I had time being granted to me that I was fearful for a while. I wouldn't have it all. And, you know, COVID seemed to be lifting and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this now. And it's about, um, I think, taking advantage of these freedoms that we actually do have that we deny ourselves too easily. When you were in those seams, did you see your family better? Did you see yourself better? Um, yeah, I mean, if you mean by this particular seam when I was out, you know, well, off in this, yeah, walk, yeah, yeah, I mean, I got, you know, you're whole, by yourself, you're by yourself. I was by myself. I and never, you were asked by one person, at least one person, uh, isn't your wife with you? Or is your wife going to be with you? And you're like, no, I, if somebody was with me, they would just be in the way. Kind of, yeah. I mean, there were a couple, as you know, a couple of friends who came and yes. met me in a certain places and we had walked for a morning or something like that. But so much of the serendipitous, magical things that happened along the way would not have happened if I had been with someone else. You have to kind of just follow your own instincts. You know, but on the other hand, giving yourself 26 days to walk, no, you know, extraneous material going in my ears. I was just there to walk and think about my own life, my family, our collective past, our history, the stories that the land told, the canals, the rail bed, railway beds, all that stuff. And that was a truly magical thing. And I really urge anybody, if you can wedge open the time to do it, to take a kind of prolonged meditative look at some stretch of the country like that, it just repays the time immeasurably. Or, in a more miniature way, Take a walk on a regular basis around where you live. Because one of the ways the book ends is you came back to discover you barely knew your own block. A block you'd lived Mm -hmm. on for 25 years. We'll pick up on that on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett from Reisterstown, Maryland. Neil King is our special guest. The book, American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
Welcome back to the Takeout. Neil King is our special guest, the book American Ramble. So let's just ask some crack practical questions. Right. On your walk, did you ever use any kind of listening device? Did you have earbuds? Did you do anything to distract yourself? Or did you just listen to what was around you? The latter. I never had anything in my ears. I was all birdsong, keeping aware of cars because I didn't yes, want to get right. squashed. Um, conversations. You know, one of the more magical moments in the book was when I encountered these Mennonite school kids playing softball. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I wouldn't have encountered if I hadn't glanced over, if I hadn't heard the whack of the baseball bat, if I hadn't seen this girl backing up and fielding this fly ball. And then, boom, a whole you know door opens and I wander into it. You had to keep your awareness. I just wanted to have my thoughts as this kind of ongoing you know, inner monologue, commentary, meditation on the stuff I was seeing and thinking mm-hmm. about. Did you wear a big floppy hat? <laughs> no, I just wore a cap. Okay. No big floppy hat, no. Sunscreen? Uh, no, I should have. Probably. Know, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the, the time of a year was late March, April. It was very early spring. Why did which, you choose that period of time? You know, I've been on Earth at that point. That was my 61st spring. Mm-hmm. And I realized... Within five or six days, I had never really, really watched a spring unfold, you know, and it was great because I walked out at the very beginning. It was a sort of slightly delayed spring that year. And um, I walked all along the whole time for weeks, the kind of leafing line. I was just like slightly ahead of it or behind it. So I got to study the unfolding and when do the maples come out and when do the sycamores come out and the whole thing and that was just you know and I talk a bit about that mm-hmm. in the book and it was a fantastic it's this it's the season of becoming it's it's you know we have two big transition seasons spring and fall and spring is is the becoming one and I, I it had to be a spring walk what were your encounters with vehicles like you know it's quite funny and it was mainly after, actually after leaving Reisterstown that I had this walk up uh, to where I was spending the night north of here. And it was that same rainstorm that pushed me into here for lunch was still happening. And I walked up the highway and I, you know, the cars were going by and they were splashing water on me. And it was not exactly pleasant, but I was just walking along pondering a bunch of things. And, you know, soon the cars just became these kind of figments. They were things that I paid attention to because I didn't want to get hit by them. And yes, I knew they carried other human beings, but. I kind of took on, I think, what must be the perspective of a deer or a rabbit or whatever. Like, okay, whatever. Like, they're there. They exist. But shame on them. They're not, they're, not in, they're not literally in the same place that I am. The experience I'm having, the richness of it, the continuous ongoing kind of narrative quality of it is just not what they're experiencing. And I felt a certain kind of sympathy mixed with some kind of condescension <laughs> towards the car people. You know. <laughs> of which you've now returned to. Yes, I, yes, I have. I, I, I will confess. Yeah. Um, we talked a moment ago about the broad intentions that you brought to this walk, but you also had some specific repertorial intentions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's clear from the book that you had places that you wanted to go. You had set up uh, encounters or interviews access to documents did that go as you thought it would did you realize the things that you were hoping journalistically to realize um how much intention went into that a lot and you know the, the book and the walk were very much a mix of um kind of trying to build the day around one thing that i had 
prearranged or thought out in advance a big theme of some kind, a person, mm -hmm. historian, a mayor, something that was kind of a tentpole, and then everything else that would just happen along the way. And miraculously, the stuff that I had planned just fell into place. Like, an ex you know, you've been a reporter for a long time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things don't fall into place. And they paid off in, to me in just huge ways. And, you know, a lot of, there's many things that I wanted to poke at, uh, but a lot of it was kind of the big debate that we're a part of now of mm -hmm. who do we honor, who deserves to be on a pedestal, who deserves a statue. You know. So let's jump into that. Okay. Two names, James Buchanan and Thaddeus Stevens. Yeah, I know. That's great stuff. I mean, I walk into Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In Lancaster, leading up to the Civil War, um, had two figures in it, people that had both made their careers there. James Buchanan, who was one of the most accomplished people to ever set in, you know, step into the White House, um, the first or the, you know, last president before uh, Abraham Lincoln took over the unfolding disaster. He had, you know, been Secretary of State and Ambassador at all these places and so on, and and yet he was what they called a doe face, which was a northern, southern sympathizer, a coddler of of slaveholders very much of a very gradual, okay, well, let's get rid of slavery, but let's take our sweet time. Thaddeus Stevens, same town, also a lawyer, total firebrand. Almost the same neighborhood. I mean, yeah, yeah. They, they, as you write, they walked the same streets, went to the same barber, yeah. had almost all the same associations. Yeah, yeah, their lives. And radically different perspectives. Yeah, and Thaddeus Stevens, you know, he became basically Abraham Lincoln's conscience. I mean, he was one of the big forces to push for the Emancipation Proclamation. No, let's do it now. For letting blacks into the Union Army. Let's do it now. Um, he was big on reparations right then, which is, of course, when it should have happened. Um, but, um, and he was one of the founders of the second founding. Once the war ended, Lincoln had been shot. Um, he was the one who helped push through a bunch of the big amendments that have become then the foundations of civil rights um, ever since then, and really some of the most important parts of the Constitution. And, you know, they were both there. And, my, the, and by the way, when I walked into the town, they were getting rid of James Buchanan Elementary as a name. They were seeking of someone else to rename the uh, school for. They were just getting around to paying lavish attention to Thaddeus Stevens's house, which had been a drug den and a used car lot and all, anyway, all kinds of things that it had fallen into, disuse, while James Buchanan's mansion on the edge of town had been sort of meticulously looked after by the Junior League and all this stuff. And my fascination with it was, okay, so Thaddeus Stevens's star is starting to rise. He will over time. By the way, in the Lincoln movie, Lincoln, he, was, he played a big role in that. Tommy Lee Jones yes. played him. And, um, you know, so I think we're entering a Thaddeus Stevens moment when the guy is going to start to get his due. And, yes, James Buchanan is always near the bottom of worst president, so he's not been held up. But even in Lancaster, they're making this big shift. And I think that reevaluation, that's what history does. That's what we do all the time. And it's a valuable exercise. You write also in the book about <clears throat> Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Yeah. You know, my um, that was, of course, was <clears throat> north of here, mm -hmm. still to come, encountering the Mason-Dixon line. And, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was give these as quick and pungent and potent as possible kind of, okay, here's the guys that surveyed the Mason-Dixon line. Here's a little bit of what you need to know about the curious things that brought them together. 
and the kind of obscurity that they went off to soon after they drew that line that was named after them, the line between slavery and freedom, essentially, and a, a line that became hugely important after 1830 when Missouri was led into the country and or into the end of the Union and the whole issue of where there would be slavery and where there wouldn't be slavery became such a huge malignant sore that, um, you know, led to the Civil War happening. And so I was fascinated by what it would be to encounter this theoretical thing that they had drawn, right, that was this big and fighting line. They drew not for the reasons that you just described, right. but to try to settle, as I read, a long-simmering territorial dispute between Maryland and Pennsylvania. Exactly. You know, while we have the borders that we have now between the states itself, I'm sure there are books written about it. It's such a bizarre and arcane thing because, you know, various kings and others are saying, oh, you, Calvert, or oh, you, William Penn, you can have this territory with these lines. But it was all very notional. They didn't even know really what they were talking about. So, you know, disputes arose, and this dispute between Maryland and Pennsylvania went on for a really long time. So this was the English saying, okay, let's resolve this thing once and for all. And some manner of science was used to try to resolve it. I mean, they were not—they were pretty good at, at this surveying process. Yeah, they were, and of course, it was—they used a lot of celestial measurements and other things to determine exactly what the—I've forgotten what the parallel was, the forty-second or something like that. Um, and so they had to draw. And then once they got further out west, where it was basically t- Indian territory, mm-hmm. um, they just stopped at the basically at the top of the Appalachian crest, and they were like, okay, we're not going to draw. That's not even our land anymore at this point, which, of course, it then became so-called our land. Exactly. Um, lines are drawn, line, lines end, and all sorts of things uh, are decided on either side of those lines. One of the themes in American Ramble, Neil King Jr. is the author. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Grill at Harriman House in Reisterstown, Maryland. The book is American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal, the author Neil King Jr. Briefly, Neil, tell my audience what you did as a correspondent in your life before you became the author of this. uh... CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Quite remarkable book. Uh, so I, I you know, was a newspaper reporter for a long time. I'd worked in the U.S. for smaller publications in Florida in particular. I bolted to Europe with my soon-to-be wife in the early 90s when everything was up for grabs there. we Lived and- in one of Europe's most beautiful cities. I regard it as the most beautiful city in Europe, even though I haven't been to Paris, so I'm probably a little bit blind, but Prague. Yeah, Prague, that was amazing. We moved there 
right when everything was up for grabs and a fascinating time. And we hooked up with the Wall Street Journal. And so through the 90s, uh, most of um, the Clinton administration, I was overseas. And um, I came back just for the tail end of that. Um, again, with the Wall Street Journal in Washington, I was chief diplomatic correspondent. I, you know, on 9-11, I was national security reporter. I was the person who wrote the first um, profile of Osama bin Laden um, three years before 9-11 in the Wall Street Journal. When, you know, the planes hit the trade centers, it was me and another guy, David Cloud, that were the guys having to cover it. Our story was at the top of the paper that next Won day. Won a Pulitzer Prize for that? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, then I went on to do a lot of stuff. I was a political reporter for a while. I covered a couple of presidential campaigns. I then became chief economic correspondent, global economics editor, I should say, um, and had ran all of our economics coverage. And then I left at the end of 2016. That was my, um, just to go off kind of as, you know, we were talking about before and just seeking to do some other stuff. Mm-hmm. What did that bank of knowledge do for you, if anything, on this walk? You know, in a large part, I think, because of both my economic reporting and my political reporting, I had a good feel for the granularity of the country and, you know, the differences uh, county by county and a sensitivity for all of those kind of nuances along the way. And um, I think that made a difference. Of course, there's also just the organizational ability. If you're a reporter, you know kind of how to fill out a day of reporting and what's going to hold up a story and what kind of people you would best look up. And Did economics look different to you up close? Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, the one thing that really came through in the, in the walk is that, um, you know, each of these various quadrants pick your you know definition of a quadrant but i you know mainly counties um can be just strikingly different and you know the variations of um the places you go through when you're seeing them at three miles an hour are really a lot more clear and you know obviously when you're coming into south philly and seeing the that was my first real encounter with like kind of deliberate decay and just neighborhoods left to fester and you know it was a fascinating thing because the day before i'd spent um, at Valley Forge where we've lavished all this attention to preserving and recreating this one winter. Buffing it all up. Buffing, yeah, of, you know, 1778, 79, and then you walk into South Philly and it's like, oh, okay, here's a place that we're not buffing up at all. So there were a lot of those contrasts, you know, you see those obviously everywhere in America. Mm -hmm. Um, You write in the book that... Trying to figure out America, young America, was kind of a European obsession in the 1820s, the 1850s. Lots of Europeans came. Lots of journals and treks across this young, bustling country were written about. And then you also write, in our history, the idea of the wanderer, the person walking and taking stock of things, is not really... That much in contrast with our own mythology and culture. Yeah, yeah. You joined those ranks. <laughs> Did you feel intimidated by doing that? No, I, I, I felt really a kind of a kinship. Really, I had, I had, you know, I had spent. I had originally planned to walk out the door at the end of March of 2020. Of course, none of us could walk out our doors at that point. So I had this delay, which was kind of welcomed, and it gave me even more time to read 
so many of these books are all collected online at the Library of Congress. There are hundreds of them. I downloaded most of them to my laptop. I looked through a lot of them. I read more thoroughly others of them. And they kind of set the stage for my walk. And, you know, there's Alexis de Tocqueville, who many listeners would be familiar with, Democracy in America. Charles Dickens, about 10 years later, 1840 or so, came to the United States, made his trek from New York down to Washington and elsewhere, and, you know, had his shocking encounter with slavery and all of those kinds of experiences. And I, it was all really useful to me because it gave me the license and kind of built a model for every encounter that I was going to have was going to be significant to me, relevant to my reporting, and worth passing on. And that, because that was very much the way that they looked at America at that time. And in a way, I kind of hope this book sort of revives that genre, you know, um, that kind of type of inquiry. You also write in the book about <clears throat> this word, privilege. Yeah, yeah. That being a white man of means makes this journey easier. Yeah, absolutely. There's no denying that at all. And that is a question that I probed a lot while I took the walk. I talk a lot about belonging. Um, very much my belief that um, the greatest privilege any of us can have or any of us can extend to, to one another is that sense of belonging. You know, oh, you come into this bar, you belong here. Welcome. You know, um, and I received a lot of welcome along the way from all kinds of people, and and I think it's quite likely that was more readily granted because of the way I appear. On the other hand, you know, and a lot of people have asked me this on book tour and stuff: Could this or that type of person, a black man, a white woman, whomever, um, take this walk? And I argue very much that they could. And I've had this discussion with women, with black men. I know I've come to know a guy named Ken Johnston who last year did a walk, a black man from um, Harriet Tubman's birthplace to the Canadian border. And he's done a lot more of this kind of walking than I have, including in the South. And he's a firm believer, as I am, that if you're inclined to it, if you consider yourself good at mingling with people, if you have your own sort of sense of belonging, then um, do it. You know, and I, and I do believe that that's true. Describe that instant when you are encountered by a stranger, they regard you as a stranger, and there's that pregnant moment where they're coming to a decision about whether to welcome you or whether to not be so welcoming. Yeah, you know, I had so many of those moments, and I, I try to describe them um, for what they're worth. Um, and I, I get into a fair bit of the idea, which I do believe in, that you know, when you walk into a room, into a barn, I went, you know, I barged into the barn of a Mennonite farrier, you know, who was shoeing a horse. Um, you kind of create that space or certainly alter it by going into it. And the, I, I was at a moment and, and during a stretch of a high degree of receptivity and openness. You know, I was out enthusiastically to see what was going on, see what people were doing. And I think that kind of maybe, I don't know, the look on my face, just people would turn, they would size you up and they would respond positively for the most part, I think because of that look on my face. That goes to a larger point. There are many in American Ramble. One of them is how you arrive makes a difference. Stay tuned for the takeout outtake especial. American Ramble is the book. Neil King's been our special guest. Neil, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. American Rambles, the book, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Neil King Jr. is the author. We are at the grill at the Harriman House in Reisterstown, Maryland. Um, I don't want to steal this from the audience because it's a really beautiful moment in the book, but I want you to talk about it. Okay. You've been on the road a great number of days. You've walked. Your back has been aching. Your legs have been aching periodically, not persistently. But you come to this place where you see in the skyline your destination. No, no. Carry on. Yeah. You know, I talk about that at various book events, and I was out in Park City, Utah, a fairly large group of people, and I said, um, you know, when I mention this, a lot of people who live in or know New York well laugh, but I had this rapturous moment while walking up the incline of the Bayonne Bridge, and Half the people in Park City, Utah, burst out laughing, which I guess shows that they were many of them were from New York. Precisely. Uh, you know, Bayonne Bridge connects Staten Island with Bayonne, New Jersey. It goes over the uh, Kilvon Kull, which is that body of water. It's a huge bridge built in the 30s. And I was walking along. It was the next to last day before I got to Manhattan. And um, I had, was looking down, thinking about some stuff, and I just lifted my eyes, and boom. There was the island of Manhattan, and, you know, I argue we humans have built a lot of things in America. We think of the Golden Gate Bridge, and you could have your list. The island of Manhattan is one of the most gorgeous things that human hands have built in this country. And that morning, there it was. It was early in the morning. It was a sparkling sight, and it just blew me away. I was uh, I was overcome. I mean, to call it rapture on the Bayonne Bridge is not an overstatement. I kind of crumbled almost to the crowd. I was just like, wow. And, you know, there's a great line, which I uh, have in the book about uh, from the great Gatsby that Fitzgerald had about how the uh, Williamsburg Bridge had this power to recreate the island of Manhattan um, for anyone going across it. And, you know, I think that power of renewal, you know, the subtitle of the word renewal, um, is a power that we kind of grant ourselves by taking these moments away. And I wouldn't have had that if I'd been driving along in a car. You know, and I've been over that bridge before. I drove a cab in New York. I, I've seen Manhattan a zillion times. It was as though I was seeing it for the first time. Yeah. One last concept. Yes, you can be a wanderer, but you talk about the importance of a destination. Yeah. That that pull that the destination gives you gives you a kind of order and a kind of psychic balance while you're wandering and encountering all the serendipitous things along the way yeah yeah there's you know there's the origins there's the word destination there's the word destiny um they're obviously very closely related and one of the beauties of the walk was that every day i woke up and i had a destination which was for that day my destiny and 
and it gave a sense of purpose and that everything else then that came along the way was added value and there was something just about that kind of stripped down nature of it that that gave the magic that the walk had and you know when i finally then got to my ultimate destination which was you know this mar mar sorry magnificent creation frederick law olmstead and mm -hmm. calvert fox had built you know right before the civil war and even into the civil war just north of the lake in central park they call the ramble and it's like this convoluted wilderness stuck in the middle of this urban setting and it's just a beautiful place that many people that have visited new york or certainly live there know and and it was a great destination to have and when i got to it i had another kind of moment of rapture and um it was a nice thing to have had set out for and have you know might be my beacon over all those weeks so everyone who appears on the show uh, answers three of my questions the same three questions so take these in whichever order you prefer neil king jr most influential book in your life and why favorite movie and if you're going to enjoy some music for a long walk or a long drive or a long flight, what kind of music, artist or genre, is that most likely to be? Um, so, favorite uh, book, I mean, I'm not a very good favorite person, but I would say in the context of this book itself, I would say my favorite book is um, In Patagonia, which is a book that Bruce Chatwin wrote about a bizarre and fascinating trip that he took through Patagonia in the 70s. Um, I would say favorite movie. Again, I'm not the greatest on movie. I, I've always been a lover of Chinatown. Um, is a movie I could Robert watch. Town. Uh, I could watch multiple times. Has so many and layers I, to as, it. And I have. It's a phenomenal yeah. movie. Um, One of the all-time best. You know, I think just genres of music. I'd have to say, kind of Americana folk music. <laughs> and I mean, this is not at all my favorite artist, but I've been really impressed of late by Zach Bryan, who came onto the scene out of nowhere last year, basically. Um, well, not for everybody out of nowhere last year, but for me. And he's phenomenal and a great kind of uh, interpreter of uh, a certain swath of American life now and um, somebody very much worth listening to. Neil King, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate it, Major. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.